What is up? It is Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. It's Jamie Dodd and my co-host, Canucks insider Thomas Drance. Of course, also covering the team for The Athletic. Canucks Talk is brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment. Be a champion on the worksite. Find them together online at DLEAMC.com. Live from the Kintech studio, Kintech Footwear and Orthotics. Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 2,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. I'm fired up because it is officially day one of Canucks training camp. I'm holding down the fort here at Mission Control at the Sportsnet 650 studios in Vancouver. Drancer, of course, is on the ground, in the rink, covering day one and all of training camp for the Vancouver Canucks. And it's such an exciting day, Drancer, because we spend so much of the summer asking questions about the team and wondering what we might see, how things might play out. And today we start to get answers. And already with one session done, uh, the second group on the ice, a lot to chew on from day one in Victoria so far. Yeah, and a theme is emerging, Jamie. And that is that today at Canucks training camp, youth is being Mm -hmm. served, right? In the very first session, right off the bat, club takes the ice. Hoaglander gets the shot with Pedersen and Kuzmenko. Today, Group B just took the ice. Hoaglander's opportunity is matched twice over on this group. And and in surprising fashion, Pod Colson with Miller and Besser. And Arshdeep Baines scratched in that third game in Penticton. We noted at the time that's usually a vote of confidence. Yep. Hey, that's a good sign. With Garland and Pierce Suter in Group B. Um, I'd add a couple others. You know, Atu Ratu yep. on the wing with Dries um, in addition to Studnika to... You know, guys who were, one, one's on a one-way contract. The other was a NHL regular for the Canucks last year. Um, to me, that's a really interesting one because we've seen the Canucks in that Group A. We've seen Rick Tockett and his coaching staff, and Jeremy Colleton was on the ice with that first group. We've seen them make lines that would appear to be developmental in orientation, right, in prioritization. And, you know, the, the example, obviously, that comes to mind would be McDonough, Sasan, and Klimovich, a line up in Penticton, a line here today in Victoria for day one of Canucks training camp. That, to me, feels like, hey, guys, you're going to be Abbotsford's first line, yep. and we're going to give you maximum runway to hit the ground running, build chemistry over the course of an NHL main camp and into Abbotsford camp, and we're going to put you in a position to succeed. The fact that Ratu, however is playing on the wing hints to me that, you know, that is a decision not necessarily motivated by, like, let's see if your wheels will play at center because long-term we'd love you to be a center. It's like an opportunity to make this team. Like, yep. hey, maybe maybe you're one of our best options. So that contrast to me is fascinating. Now, one thing that every time I tweet, young guy on a line with this group, right, the, the, my, my mentions fill up with people being like, placeholder for Mikheyev? Is a placeholder for... <laughs> how many guys can be well, holding down a, 
How many places does he need? Um, Mikheyev, of course, not here today, not with Group C out in Esquimalt because uh, of a personal issue. Um, you know, his agent telling inquiring reporters uh, th- that it's not a huge deal. Um, so we'll see there. Club's not saying anything. We'll respect his privacy. Yeah. Um, he wasn't going to be in one of the main groups anyway, and obviously we know what Mikheyev can contribute to this team, particularly as he gets up to full speed. But he, look, regardless of where Mikheyev is ultimately going to fit into this lineup, to open training camp in this manner with such an emphasis on giving young players an opportunity uh, I think that's fascinating, particularly given the urgency of the good start conversation around this team. Uh, youth has been served here today at Canucks training camp. I don't know that that's what we could have possibly expected. And to me, as we begin to read too much into line combinations and the like, <laughs> I, I think that's the I, no, never. I think that's the first and foremost trend <laughs> that we have to know. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. I mean, I think it started with the Hoaglander, Hoaglander getting the shot with Kuzmenko and Pedersen, which is not necessarily a huge surprise. But then, as you say, it really continues up and down the lineup, right? In 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 the top six with Hoaglander and Pod Colson in a potential third line role with Baines getting that shot with Suter and Garland and then Ratu playing with, you know, two NHL players last year in Sheldon Dries and Studnika rather than in uh, a tailor-made Abbotsford line like Klimovich and McDonough are doing with Max Sasson. So really up and down the lineup, there are these opportunities for young players on day one of training camp. And, you know, that's fascinating to me because we're also see we're kind of seeing what the path to making the NHL team might look like for all of these players, right? What they're going to be asked to do, what the coaching staff is hoping to see uh, out of each and every one of them. The Ratu one in particular really stuck out to me because it would be pretty easy to envision a scenario where they plug him in with a couple of guys who they think are going to be really good line mates in Abbotsford and just say, hey, get comfortable with these guys and go do your thing in Abbotsford. But, you know, he's really in that. He's on a, basically a, a quad A line, right? Like guys who are mm. guys who can play in the NHL and play consistently in the NHL. But, you know, it also wouldn't shock you if they ended up starting the year in Abbotsford. That's kind of the spot that Dries and Stadnika find them are, are in as opposed to the clear Abbotsford players farther down the lineup. And that suggests to me that, you know, maybe Ratu should be viewed the same way as one of those, as the Abbotsford player who might have the best shot at making the NHL team based on his placement uh, on that line. Let's go through some of these names in order and kind of talk about what the what the opportunity means for them, what they kind of have to do to succeed to make the most of this opportunity. And, and you know, we started off, uh, or, or in the list, we started with Niels Hoaglander getting that opportunity with Patterson and Kuzmenko. And, you know, you mentioned the the instant reaction of, well, is this just a placeholder for Mikheyev? And look, obviously, Mikheyev had success with those two guys when he was healthy last year. We also don't know Mikheyev's timetable or his status. And we heard from Rick Tockett yesterday that he's maybe looking at this a little bit more as putting duos together and then finding trying to find... Uh, mm. third guys. So I think there's every reason not just to look at this as a McKayev stand-in opportunity for Hoaglander, but a, a bigger opportunity, an opportunity to really seize that spot and make it his own if he can do the things that he needs to do in training camp in the preseason. Yeah, and you know, I don't want to be the guy with a negative spin here, but I do want to share one of my other reactions. Lies. 
lies. With, no, truly. I just want I'm to joking. share one of my other reactions, and I brought it up on the show yesterday, right? Which is there is a dynamic around this club right now um, about appealing to Pedersen. Right, And fans feel it. Every single move they make is partly justified in our inbox and in our conversations and in my Twitter arguments with, well, they have to appeal to their franchise center. Um, You know, we see this in sports sometimes where a player takes on a a level of importance beyond what Mm. we typically see. You know, uh, is Hoaglander here as Nick Chubb, or sorry, not not Nick Chubb, um, Randall Cobb, (laughs) Elias <laughs> Pedersen's Aaron Rodgers, right? Like, the, to, there, there's an extent to which that's something that I think bears monitoring. I'm not going to say I'm concerned about it because there's a lot of reasons it could make sense. It could be the first audition for, you know, one of the third guys with a set duo of, of Pedersen and Kuzmenko. But I think it bears monitoring because as we think about this Canucks season in the context of everything going right, mm-hmm. right, the dynamic of a team trying to balance the crest on the front with a vital name on the back and the single most important stakeholder in the organization this season, um, you know, is one that uh, I think is risky. It's like a, a beast in a cage. You know, it's, um, it's the dinosaurs behind the, uh, the electric wires. Uh, certainly you don't want the storm to hit and Nedry to steal the embryos and all hell to break loose. <laughs> so I just want to bring that up as something to watch. It's, it's on my watch list. Yellow light, not red light. Want to be fair about it. I don't know that there's anything there yet, but it's, it's a factor that I'm observing and was part of my instant reaction in addition to the Hoaglander opportunity. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think this is a real look, and I think this, these are real looks up and down the lineup. Yeah. You see Linus Carlson in this uh, B group uh, is getting a similar t- to Ratu-type look as well, uh, playing with Amon and Joshua, two guys who played the entire mm-hmm. season for the most part. I mean, I guess Amon was down in the American League for a week or two uh, with the NHL roster. So um, certainly lots to unpack there. Um, and and I, do think, like, I do think that this club understands, I think, that they need a couple of guys, a couple of these contributors, um, a couple of the players that they've invested so much in developing to hit um, as top nine guys this season if they're going to be the team for whom everything goes right and a playoff berth is in the office. Uh, Owen texts in, what were the lines with the first group? I'll run through them quickly because we just we glossed over a couple of them there. But in the first group, it was uh, Patterson with Hoaglander and Kuzmenko, Bluger with Anthony Bobillier and Di Giuseppe, uh, Sheldon Dries, Atu Ratu, and Jack Stadnika, and then Max Sasson skating between uh, uh, Aiden McDonough and Danila Klimovich. And, you know, on, on Hoaglander and Pod Colson in particular getting these shots, Pod Colson's in the second group right now skating with JT Miller and Brock Besser. So you've got Hoaglander skating with a potential first line in group one, Vasily Colson skating with a potential second line in group two, and even setting aside Ratu and Baines from the kind of youth opportunity movement here we're seeing early on day one. You know, I just think if you think about, again, using Jim Rutherford's framework of if everything goes right, the best version of this Canucks forward group, the best possible version probably does involve Niels Hoaglander and Vasily Podkolzin taking that next step and seizing legitimate roles like this, right? Now, their ceiling is just fundamentally higher than somebody like Phil Giuseppe or Sheldon Dries or Jack Studnika. 
those players might provide more certainty, might be more likely to earn the trust of the coaching staff in certain situations. But I think this is a recognition that, yeah, this Canucks team does need to maybe take a few risks, does need some things to go in their way. And, you know, Pod Colson and Hoaglander are both players that have that offensive upside or at least that overall impact upside uh, in the case of Vasily Pod Colson, where you want to at least roll the dice maybe to start and see if they can come close to that ceiling because that's what the best version of the team is going to look like. If those two guys step up and can claim spots in you know really key roles for this team. Yeah, I, I want to do a little bit of descriptive explanation, too, of what we saw at the first Canucks Please training, do. Or at the first Canucks session, because this is Rick Tockett's first training camp, right? Yep. And I went over the idea of, like, getting in a coach's head over time, understanding how they view players, understanding what they prioritize, right? And, and even in us reading too much into lines, you know, an annual sport in the Vancouver market, uh-huh. um, you know, we, we, we still don't really know how talk it looks at this like is this similar to when tanev started the season on a pair with quinn hughes in this building four years ago and it mattered a lot is it similar to hoaglander opening camp um with pearson and and bo horvat and it mattered a lot or is it noise right like we we, is it a look we don't know yet because we don't know exactly how talk it runs things now today in terms of uh in terms of camp sessions um about 40 minutes of intense work followed by a 20-minute scrape followed by another 40 minutes of pretty intense work for the A group. Some pretty interesting neutral zone drills in particular where uh, the line would go, but it, they weren't staying in their lanes. It wasn't like a line rush drill. Uh, it almost looked like a, um, like, a, like a fail-safe neutral zone drill, like something that the club might use under pressure. Um, we saw some pretty involved, like three on three drills that became two on two drills, or sorry, two on two drills that would expand to be three on three drills. Lots of like defending, uh, lots of drills that targeted both creating and defending all at once and had different phases all across the ice. And then a really lengthy session that was like a bag skate in disguise <laughs> with an awful <laughs> lot of bag, uh, a lot, awful lot of back checking yep. um, late in the session. So, um, you know, despite the educational emphasis that Talkit put on it yesterday, uh, I would say the first session looked pretty demanding. Like, that looked like a pretty demanding um, training camp session as I watched JT Miller pick expertly uh, a top right corner on uh, one of Vancouver's depth goalies. Um, so it was very much so uh, a pretty intense day of practice with a fair bit of battling and, and, and a lot of, like, complex drills that included shifting through the neutral zone from one end of the rink to the other. Uh, all right, good. I was going to ask for a uh, an early vibe check from a Rick Tockett training camp, but uh, there you have it, what the, what the first couple of sessions uh, looked like. So, I mean... <laughs> Again, we'll go from, uh, you know, reading too much into the lines to reading too much into the first sessions of training camp. But, I mean, I know you, Drancer. I know you can't find yourself in a rink watching NHL players without uh, without some takeaways. So did anything stand out to you in terms of the on-ice work? And, you know, in particular from any of the young players that were, uh, were monitoring and watching what they do with these opportunities? Not, not a lot. Uh, you know, one guy who I thought looked really good, and it's early, like, the, the fact is is that you wouldn't expect to be like, you know who looked really good? Elias Pettersson, right? Like, that's a guy who's finding finding his hands, finding his feet, right? Different, But there are some guys on the fringes where, um, you know, things matter right from the get-go, right? Like, I thought Jack Stanika looked fast 
and I thought he competed with the urgency you'd expect of a, of a guy who knows he's in tough to make a team. Mm-hmm. So you like to see that. Um, you know, I thought, like, Max Sasson and Aiden McDonough were both great in Penticton. They both looked really good out here again today. Um, you know, Danila Klimovich, a, a little bit less so, but it's so early. Uh, we'll see. Um, you know, I thought Jet Wu had a really strong day. He hit a post during one of the sort of uh, drills in which the defenders were activating and contributing to the attack. Uh, didn't get walked on any of the sort of rush defense drills. Like, just looked solid. Looked like he belonged. Looked like an NHL player. And that's one of the first things you'll notice, right, is you see, like, the two-on-two drill that becomes a three-on-three drill, right? There was one where it's Phil Giuseppe and Anthony Bovillier. Right, so we're talking about twenty-eight-year-old guys, yep. men in this league, lots of experience, um, and the pair defending them was Sawyer Minio and Hunter Brustevich. Right, two eighteen-year-olds, recent third-round picks, and it looked exactly the way you'd expect. And that means nothing in terms of what Brustevich and Sawyer Minio can be in the future. In fact, it's probably helpful for them to get a taste of just how hard it is <laughs> to defend. Yeah. Even bottom six guys in this league. Um, but, you know, that's like one thing you'll notice quickly, right? There's guys who are going to be in that situation, and it's like, yeah, that's an NHL defender. And there's guys who are going to be in that situation, and it's like, yeah, that guy's 18. And, you know, th- that's sort of what I'd say about Jet Wu is throughout the, la- the session in Group A, I thought Jet Wu looked very much the part of, a, of an NHL defender and maybe a guy we shouldn't necessarily write off. Um, as being a dark horse candidate for, you know, what we all anticipate to be that third pair spot, that open third pair spot with Tyler Myers, um, that Guillaume Brisebois sort of opened yep. um, camp in. Yeah, so if we want to uh, shift and, and go over the defensive pairings from that first group, it was Ian Cole with Philip Ronick, so a potential uh, second pair. Yeah, and, you know, I was somebody that if you had, if you had made me bet, I would have bet on an Ian Cole-Quinn Hughes pairing to potentially open camp. So that's yep. a little different than I expected, but I do think there's uh, some interesting takeaways there. Guillaume Brisebois gets to skate with Tyler Myers, which is a, a kind of potential first-look third pairing, and you and I have talked a lot about the battle for that final spot, potentially alongside Tyler Myers, depending on how the rest of the defense pairings shake out. Uh, Christian Willannon and Jet Wu, and then, as you mentioned, uh, the two recent draftees, Sawyer Minio and Hunter Brustevich, uh, skating well, together I can, as well. I can now keep going for you live. Right. <laughs> the Canucks are showing showing D pairs for Group B in drills, so I at least have two of them. I don't have all of them. Quinn Hughes opens training camp on a pair with Noah Juleson. Wow, all it's right. Noah Juleson with Quinn Hughes. Carson Soucy playing with Cole McWard on, on the second pair for Group B. And then it's looking like we've got Matt Irwin opening on the right side um, with Jack Rathbone on his left. And the fourth pair will reveal itself shortly, but that'll be Hirose's pair with... You know, somebody. I mean, I guess there's only one guy left, Philip Johansson. So yeah. it looks like a Hirose Johansson pair. And that's interesting, too, because in some ways that would feel like your developmental pair, right? That would feel mm-hmm. like, hey, maybe maybe that's a first pair in Abbotsford um, this year. So, um, you know, we'll, we'll have a chance to ask Rick Talkett about it after the show. Um, and, and we will. But, uh, but to me, that's pretty interesting. I think that's one of those um, decisions that does make me wonder if 
in uh, the in Hirose's case, right, as well as he showed last year, maybe he showed enough that the team's preference is actually to give him an, an extended look in huge minutes yeah, in the American like, League for the long-term benefit of right. the club as opposed to throwing him in on the third pair with Myers or even sort of giving him a, a, a real chance to compete there. Maybe that's reading too much into it. Camp is long. It's just the first day. But Hirose Johansson, pretty interesting to me. And I, and I just want to spell that out because I think it's an interesting point. Is As much as that can seem pessimistic about Akito Hirose, as you say, it can also actually be a situation where they see enough potential in the player that they're thinking long-term with him rather than we got to squeeze whatever value we can right now at the NHL level, right? So you can look at it and say, oh, that's weird. He's not getting an opportunity with an NHL player, but it's the kind of thing where it can also actually be a a long-term positive for the player uh, to get those really important reps down in big situations, big minutes in Abbotsford. So again, first day, you know, we're just getting a look at these pairings. Yeah, They could look completely different tomorrow, uh, but that's very interesting. And I will say, you know, Noah Juleson with Quinn Hughes, I mean, maybe we shouldn't be surprised because they played together well last year in stretches. And, you know, we know we all have talked at length about what Quinn Hughes can do with kind of nondescript physical uh, defense partners on his pairing. But that changes the entire complexion of the battle for the sixth defenseman spot, right? Because all of a sudden now, instead of Ian Cole or Carson Soucy stepping up and playing on their offside with Quinn Hughes, which I would have bet as the most likely situation, now you've got a, a, a natural right-handed shot defenseman there potentially, and then you go Juleson, Hronick, Myers down the right side and potentially Hughes, Cole, Soucy in some order down the left side. And then all of a sudden, the kind of left shot hopefuls that we've been talking about, like Hirose, like Christian Willannon, who is skating with Jet Wu, like Guillaume Brisebois even, who was skating with Tyler Myers, all of a sudden they're in a lot tougher to be in the opening night lineup if Noah Juleson can claim that spot next to Quinn Hughes. Well, and I just add one thing before we go to break, and I know we're up against it, so I'll keep it as brief as I can, given that brevity is not my strength. <laughs> um, now that I see Hughes with Juleson and Susie with McWard, um, I, I do think that that final piece of the puzzle should alter how much we're reading into lines. Like, this looks like a far more developmental orientation to open training camp than what we've previously seen from the Canucks. Like, usually, opening day, day one, we see something that matters. And I'm not saying none of this matters. Something may, you know, come April, right? We'll be like, wow, that we saw that at training camp and it mattered all year. And I'm not, I'm not ruling out that possibility that some of this stuff proves sticky. But I do wonder to what extent this club is really trying to pair experienced guy with inexperienced guy. Mm-hmm. Um, giving giving young guys a shot on lines with true NHL players and sort of allowing the competition to take place um, in a different sort of dynamic than what we've been used to in Canucks camps in the past. Perhaps that's a product of the greater alignment that Alvin, Rutherford, and Tockett have been touting 
in the lead up to today. Is that part of the educational component that Rick Tockett was talking about yesterday as well, right? Like we, Maybe, were, yeah. we were, I mean, we were thinking educational at the NHL level in terms of teaching the vets systems and all of that, but there's an educational component for the younger players uh, that are at training camp as well, or at least it can be an opportunity if that's how you want to play it. Uh, lots more coverage of Canucks training camp coming up. Of course, Drancer is on location on Vancouver Island there, so we'll have first-hand accounts from him. We would expect to hear from some of the players in Group 1 relative soon as well we'll bring you any audio uh, from rick including elias yes so as soon as we get those that audio from elias Pettersson in particular uh we will get it to you and we will dissect it and talk about it anything we hear from rick talkett as well lots more coming up here it is canucks talk sportsnet 650 the most opinionated canucks show out there canucks talk with jamie dodd and thomas drance be sure to subscribe on apple spotify or wherever you get your podcasts Welcome back to Canucks Talk Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd, Thomas Trance, live from the Kintech Studio. 650, 650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Dunbar Lumber with three stores to serve you in Ladner on Bridge Street or Dunbar Lumber Express at Ladner Center or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. Matt in Toronto texts in. Trance sounds so amped. It's filling me with joy. Training camp is great. It's awesome. And I will say, I mean, like as much as we uh, we joke about, you know, reading too much into lines on day one of training camp, I unapologetically will never get tired of talking line combinations and defense pairings. It's the best. So I am thrilled that we have actual official uh, combos and pairings to be dissecting and and chewing on now that training camp is officially underway. Uh, keep getting your texts and questions in 656. 50 uh Harmon Dial will join us a little bit and uh, we will wait on audio from Elias Pettersson and other members of the Vancouver Canucks who have already skated today as it comes in we'll get you any of the uh relevant pieces of information that come in from that so we mentioned um you know the big theme of day one developing is that young players up and down the lineup at forward even a little bit on the blue line getting some interesting opportunities and that really starts at the top of the lineup uh, with Niels Hoaglander skating with Elias Pettersson and Andre Kuzmenko on a potential first line and you know you mentioned Hoagland I saw I saw a quote from Hoaglander as well talking about his great off-ice relationship with Elias Pettersson and how close they are he mentions he's staying at the, staying at uh, Pettersson's house right now and yeah that could absolutely play a role in Hoaglander getting this opportunity but I mean from an on-ice perspective you know it's great to be there on day one of training camp why could this be a potential on-ice fit what does Niels Hoaglander need to do to complement Pedersen and Kuzmenko who we know are capable of filling the net at five on five what does he need to turn this from an opportunity to you know his semi-permanent spot in the lineup well I, I mean, I think a lot of it for Hoaglander can be summarized in two parts, okay? Part one is finishing, right? To this point, yeah. Hoaglander has been a productive but not dynamic finisher. Now, I'd note this. Although he's been on a two-year shooting percentage bender and there's at least a possibility that Ilya Mikheyev has tapped into something a little more sustainable in terms of his uh, offensive development, raw tools... I struggle with the notion that Mikheyev has more skill than Nils Hoaglander, and, and he worked just fine, was extremely prolific mm-hmm. on that line with 
Kuzmenko and Pedersen, nonetheless, to this point in his career and at no level previously, has Hoaglander produced as more than a middle six ceiling type, right? Now, he's got good hands and tight. I don't know that he's got like a giant wrist shot, right? Um, I don't know that he's a dynamic playmaker, although I think he can do some interesting things down low. I think he's a pretty good puck carrier through the neutral zone and occasionally shows flashes of being a dynamic puck carrier through the neutral zone, but I don't know that he's put it all together. I think if Hoaglander is going to fill a spot there, one of the big challenges for him, one, one of the stretch asks that I think this organization is going to be making of him is, you know, you need to be pretty consistent putting the puck in the back of the net from 20 feet out, right? Like from, from, from close in, yeah. 20 feet out in. Um, and in the dirty areas of the ice, you got to live there, and you gotta you got to be putting in some goals from that spot. The other side of the equation would be the play without the puck. And, you know, whether it's cutting off the top in terms of in-zone defending, whether it's being in the right lane as a four-checker, right, uh, being able to do more than be the first guy in the F1 on a four-check, being in the right lane if you're F2 or F3, particularly because we know how good Pedersen can be harassing the primary puck carrier as the deep man on the forecheck. Um, to me, that's sort of the, the two-pronged question that I'd have. The, the things that I think Hoaglander would have to answer to stick there would be, can you do the right things without the puck more consistently than you have to this point in your NHL career? And can you actually fill the net to capitalize off of all of the glorious possession that, that Pedersen and Kuzmenko habitually seem to generate with one another. The finishing one is really fascinating because on the one hand, you're right, it's been a frustration, I think, for watching Niels Hoaglander over the last couple of years, right, is the finishing rate. But also, I mean, there's certainly not a better position on the Canucks. And frankly, when you look around the league, I mean, playing with Elias Pedersen or Andrew Kuzmenko is a pretty enviable position to be in in terms of your ability to convert goals. So it is a concern. I mean, I think the other part of it is, you know, those guys are going to do their own um, their own fair share of filling the net, right? So I would worry less about his finishing. Like at a certain at a baseline level, it has to be there, and you have to make the most of getting the chance to play with uh, with guys like Kuzmenko and Patterson. But I, I wonder one about what you said. You know, his work off the puck and especially on the forecheck, but also just doing that. Some of those dirty work, the, some of that dirty work for them, right? Like retrieving pucks doing things like that to get the puck on the stick of Elias Pettersson and Andre Kuzmenko and let them kind of go to work. And, you know, how much does he need to carry the puck and be that guy versus kind of just being the complimentary player for his really, really high-skilled line mates? And, you know, we know he has the work rate and the energy, and Rick Tockett talked about how he's looking for the young players to bring that energy. Uh, I'm going to be really curious to see how we can do those sorts of things if should he get this opportunity in preseason and maybe even in regular season games as well. I mean, yeah, me too. And and I would expect, honestly, I would expect we'll have a sense, too, of it by the end of this weekend. You know, all of this builds to a scrimmage on Saturday followed mm-hmm. by the team taking at least some of these players to a preseason game on Sunday. So, you know, by the end of this weekend, I think we'll have a good sense or a better sense than we have right now of who's beginning to seize that opportunity. Um, you know, we can already see as these guys go through drills especially among the younger players like you know these this doesn't take long for the real difference makers the the real movers and shakers at a camp to separate themselves um 
But but to this point, obviously, we, we, we don't have much. <laughs> um, by next week, by Monday's show, though, we're going to be able to yeah. say, like, this guy's stock is rising and this guy's stock is down. Like, we're, we're going to have a good sense of it by Monday. Yeah, no, it, it happens really quickly, right? And, I mean, just the, the lines and the opportunities that we're talking about is kind of uh, – it's kind of the first sign of where things are going. But as you said, the cream tends to rise to the top pretty quickly. And you know what the real battles and what the real hard decisions are going to be in a hurry for the coaching staff. And, you know, another one of those opportunities as we dig a little bit deeper into all of them. And this one may be a little bit more surprising from my perspective, just because of the way his his game profiles is seeing Vasily Podkolzin get that shot with JT Miller and Brock Besser on a potential second line. And, you know, you and I talked a lot last year about Prod Colson's offense doesn't need to make this kind of, it doesn't have to be a, a immediately really impressive because he can impact the games in so many other ways. And maybe that makes it more tempting to kind of lock him into a clear cut bottom six role where he's getting consistent minutes and he's just asked to do something very specific. But we've also heard talk at talk a lot about, you know, how these young players need to, Maybe play a little bit more freely, right? Have some of that, have some of those offensive instincts uh, in their games, and Pod Colson will have the chance to do that. And, you know, I think Hoaglander not a big surprise to me that he's getting that opportunity. But Pod Colson, it's going to be really interesting to see how he makes the most of this one because that's higher up in the lineup than I was potentially expecting to see him so early in training camp. So I'm of two minds here. The on the one hand, when Pod Colson was at his very best toward the end of his rookie season, it was often on Miller's wing, right? Right. Um, you know, if Pod Colson doesn't necessarily have that top-end offensive ceiling, right, that doesn't mean that he can't be an effective pooper scooper in terms of recycling <laughs> the puck off the cycle for JT Miller, right? Because whatever you can do to make sure JT Miller maximizes the amount of touches he gets, the amount of, of um, chances he has to break a game open with his passing, uh, the more valuable you are. Additionally, you know, M- Miller can find you pretty open, right? Like a lot of what we saw Pod Colson score and generate uh, down the stretch, m- much like with Alex Chase on, and, and Miller was just on fuego in that 99-point season down the stretch, but a lot of it was like tappins. Right, like Miller just finding you back door. Um, You know, I I don't know that you're necessarily asking a lot of him offensively in that spot. It's just like win battles, go into the corners, um, be reliable defensively, bring that work rate, which is the one part of Pod Colson's game that we know he will bring, right? Mm -hmm. Um, That's sort of what you're asking, and I, I think he should be up to that task. The other side of the coin, though, is if you put Miller... With Besser and Pod Colson, is there enough speed in that trio? Mm. Like, is there enough speed in that trio? And and I would suggest to you, um, maybe, <laughs> you know, like it could work, especially because while while I'm not sure he's, um, you know, when we talked about this uh, last week, but like, well, I well I don't know if Miller's like got high end. Um, straightaway speed, he can clearly be dynamic as a putt carrier through the neutral zone, and he's definitely quick, whether he's fast or not, but is there enough speed along the wall with a, with a playmaker like him to, you know, hold up in tough minutes and consistently sort of, sort of attack in the dynamic way that this club's going to need Miller's line to attack their opposition this season? That I'm not sure about. I, I, I'd, I'd certainly put 
um, you know, a skeptical side eye on that. <laughs> well, and as you mentioned, the other part of that equation as well with Pud Colson potentially skating with JT Miller and Brock Besser is, you know, we all expect JT Miller to play an awful lot of very difficult minutes for this team. You know, a lot of minutes against some of the best players uh, on the other team. And that's a lot to ask for Vasily Pod Colson, right? Like, you're right on the offensive side of things that the job is relatively simple. It's go, it's, it's retrieve the pocket, it's get it to Miller and, you know, go to the dirty areas and be ready to tap pucks in, whether they're from feeds or from rebounds or whatever the case is. But, you know, if you're playing on JT Miller's wing, you're going to have to be, you're going to have to have a certain amount of defensive reliability to your game because I think it's just inevitable that he's going to uh, play a lot of those tough minutes. And Pod Colson, again, well, I think... Especially- Especially if Pedersen's with Hoaglander yep. and Kuzmenko. Yep, 100%, right? Because then that takes probably Pedersen. That knocks him maybe a little bit down the pecking order and how, how, how much appetite you have to throw him out against the really, really good lines on the other team. So, again, Pod Colson, I think, profiles as the type of winger who maybe down the road or when he's in his prime can handle that, that you feel really good about putting out in situations like that. But that doesn't mean he's he hasn't done it, right? He hasn't been a part of a line that's had a lot of success in, in a matchup role. So that's another huge element of it. And when we start to talk about, okay, where could a Mikheyev uh, stand-in be here? Or where, where could Mikheyev slot in? You know, you mentioned speed. I'm talking about defensive reliability. Well, those are two yep. things that... A healthy Ilya Mikheyev brings, right? So that would be a spot even more than with Kuzmenko and Pedersen where I could see, you know, if things don't go really, really well for Pod Colson, I would think it would be pretty easy to slide Ilya Mikheyev into his spot. Yeah, I mean, I see what you're saying. I like the calibration of the line, but I would note just how often, right, the trio with Pedersen and Kuzmenko played together last season. Mm-hmm. Um and, and, you know, I'd sort of add this, um, you know, in terms of five-on-five five scoring rates over large samples, you know, you put Besser, Miller, Mikheyev together as a line, and now I start to get worried about whether or not they're going to produce, right? Yep. Like whether there's going to be enough of an offensive bottom line out of that group because, you know, I, we all know what Miller has done the last two seasons in terms of scoring, but... You know, he had 31 points at five on five last year. Even the year prior, there's a lot of power play offense there. Like, a large sample with Miller, you're looking at a guy who tends to produce at more of a second line five on five rate as opposed to a top line five on five rate. And then with Mikheyev, again, you've had two years where he's been pretty prolific as a goal scorer, but historically more of a third line rate scorer. Um, and then Besser hasn't exactly been driving offense at more than a middle six rate either, um, you know, it, since that sort of lockout shortened Canadian division season where he was electric. So, um, you know, one thing to note about this team that I'm sort of beginning to settle in on as uh, as a, you know, I don't know if a, a fully fleshed out take so much as something that's, again, on my watch list, uh, a yellow light concern for me is offense and i know that's gonna catch people off guard (laughs) because this team filled the net so ably last season but if you if you peer a little deeper if you peer a little deeper into that you know they were 20th in the nhl in five on five goals for right their goals for total shrunk a bit after they tightened things up defensively late in the season too um their top line 
converted on 15% of its shots, five on five, right? Like Pedersen and Kuzmenko together were, were converting at 15%, a 15% clip, which is, you know, not going to be sustainable most likely. I mean, the Twins, for example, in their prime, right, the, the season that Henrik Sedin won the Hart Trophy, uh, and those two are like absolute shot quality generators, right? We literally yep. watched them for years, pass up high quality shots <laughs> for better quality shots, Um you know, that one season they were at 13%, and the next season it was down at 10 I mean, if the Twins aren't sustaining 13%, it's hard for me to necessarily bank on Pedersen and Kuzmenko sustaining 15%, although it's worth noting that shooters have the upper hand yes. in the NHL uh, these days. Same, same in percentage a way they didn't 15 is, years ago. Yeah, is down from the Sedin's heyday for sure. So, so worth noting, but nonetheless, you know, Kuzmenko shot... Uh, 28% basically last year, uh, he's the first guy in the league. <laughs> he's the first guy this century to maintain a shooting percentage that hot over the course of a full season, right? Like, uh, you literally won't find anyone else comparable, uh, which goes to show you, A, how rare it was, and B, how, how hard it is to imagine that over 23 years of NHL history, he'd be not only the first guy to do it, but the first guy to do it and then do it again. So, you know, you put all that together, and, and I do think this club's scoring rate is perhaps a little bit more delicate than people realize. Well, and, and that, in fact, in fact, making sure to be protective of how much this club scores is worthwhile, no matter how much we want to focus on seeing them improve their defense after, oh, what was last season? I mean, I think, you know, these trade-offs that we're talking about, right, where, okay, you put Hoaglander and Pod Coles in the top six, and they have the highest theoretical offensive upside, but then what does that mean for your ability to use, you know, Patterson and JT Miller in matchup roles? Like, th- that type of trade-off that we're talking about, I mean, it's kind of been a through line going back to the last days of Travis Green's tenure as head coach, right? Where it was, mm. okay, hey, they're defending pretty well, but they've completely neutered their five-on-five offense, and in some ways, is like the his the story of the Canucks from that moment with Travis Green through Bruce Boudreau through Rick Tockett has been they can score really well, but they're going to give a ton of it back on the back end if they if they orient things that way. And you think about the Bruce Boudreau bump where they were giving so many opportunities back and were being rescued by Thatcher Demko on a nightly basis, or they can really tighten things up and you can strategize that way, but then they're not really an above average offensive team anymore. And that's kind of the question I think is, can you find a way, whether it's through systems, obviously bringing in new players uh, like they've done to a certain extent through line combinations, whatever it is to do both things at an above average level, right? Where you're not making these big sacrifices in one direction or another. It's not, you know, Hey, if we put McKayev in the second line, then we'll have a great defensive unit. But now all of a sudden we're worried about our ability to get goals from the second line. Can you find those combinations where you feel good about them doing both things at once? That's really the key. And I think that, again, that's yeah. something that we've been talking about for a couple of years now. And we're still having those conversations with some of the trade-offs we're talking about. Well, and, and I'd add too, you know, Rick Tockett's Arizona Coyotes teams were deeply defensively oriented. Yep. Right? Like those were not high scoring teams. Those were teams that won three one two or three two two one, right? Um we know that he can coach offense. We, we he ran the power play in Pittsburgh. Yep. But um, you know, certainly he built a team that was calibrated to win from the back end out. Uh this is a different team, right? I mean, you can say to me 
that the Canucks have the third best forward group in the Pacific Division. And I would say yes, right? Like, that's probably true. Uh, you know, probably you, you you pick Edmonton and Vegas ahead of them, mm-hmm. right? Out of respect for the champions and out of, out of respect for McDavid and Dreisaitl. But, you know, I don't think you'd pick LA's group ahead of Vancouver's. I definitely don't think you'd pick Calgary's group, given the top end and, and its contrast with and how it contrasts with what Pedersen and, and Miller and Kuzmenko bring. I certainly don't think you'd take Seattle's. Nope. Uh, even if I really like... You know the 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 run through the wall competitiveness that guys like Eberle, Schwartz, and Yan Gord bring. Uh, as much as I sort of wonder if Vancouver has enough guys like that, you'd pick Vancouver's high end talent ahead of those guys every day. So this is probably the third best group in terms of what they have up front in their own division. But on the back end, I think you're probably looking at sixth, right? Like you're probably looking at sixth, and and you know, and that's with things breaking their way. So. Um, it's going to be very interesting to see how Tockett's style um, a- actually is sort of articulated through how this team plays, and it's going to be fascinating to see if the Canucks have enough push from the back end to, as you say, do both, to both yep. defend at an above-average clip and score at an above-average clip, especially given that last season they defended at you know, nearly a league-worst clip um, and scored at a below-average clip as well. Uh, by the way, Within this conversation, like, the thing that I tend to spotlight or look at or point my finger at in explaining why the Canucks have struggled to do both is the composition of the defense, right? Mm. Um, And this is where I do think the Canucks have made the biggest offseason upgrade. Uh, As much as, you know, I I love to sing Pius Suter's praises... Puce Suter's praises. I'm going to get it eventually. Batch was looking at me. He immediately <laughs> looked up from his laptop as I mispronounced the name. So, um, Batch needs like a spray bottle, uh, like he, like he used on a cat. Yeah, <laughs> a spray bottle. Yeah, he would. No, he would use it. He would abuse that. I don't think he'd use it. He would abuse that power. Um, so, you know, this team last year probably had one top four caliber defenseman, right? Like one yeah. in Quinn Hughes. And you bring in Philip Peronik, You definitely have two. And I don't know what your mileage is on Carson Soucy and Ian Cole. For me, I think you could describe them as third pair guys, but I'd probably describe them more like thir- three, four, or sorry, four fives. Like yes. Four. Yep. So let's let's say they have two and a half top four defensemen. That's a huge bump from one. Yep. <laughs> 150% increase in top well, four defensemen. To put it another way, they probably have three defensemen who would be better than their second defenseman last year, right? They brought in three guys yeah. who would be better than their second defenseman last year in Hronik, uh, Susie, and Cole. At least in theory, right? Yeah. Although the way Luke Shen played in Toronto, right? Sure, that's, I mean, fair. May- that's fair. Maybe, maybe we, maybe, may- they certainly brought in a one, and maybe let's go one and a half, right? So sure. with, anyway, my point being that, you know, this team, you hope, has enough to both defend and has enough ability to sort of push the puck um, and actually connect play that they can transition effectively from from getting stops to attacking. And and one thing that sort of con- I find a little concerning when we see Brisebois play with Myers as a first look, uh, especially if we're reading more into that than just the usual sort of like developmental camp and the opportunity connected to that. Um, you know, I do wonder if you have this sort of group that's composed with Hughes, Susie, Cole, Heronic, and some combo as a top four, Myers and Brisebois as your, as your sort of bottom pair. Um, you know, that's two guys that can reliably move the puck in a league where I think you need four and a half minimum 
uh, to really compete, that, that to me becomes a concern and becomes sort of a, an area where I'd look to see what sort of leash, uh, what sort of look guys like Wolan and, and Hirose that can maybe help this team get moving uh, at the stem uh, get as training camp goes forward. Uh, and by the way, people asking about uh, Connor Garland. Well, did I miss where Garland is fitting into all of this? He was skating in the second group uh, with Puce Suter and uh, Arshdeep Baines on their line. So Big I w- look for Baines. Big look for Baines. And I also read into that that maybe Suter-Garland, uh, an early duo, an early third-line mm. duo that Rick Tockett might be auditioning there, which is, which is fascinating in its own right because then you're looking at a very offensively-oriented third line, I would say. Well, except I think I, I think Suter is more calibrated to the defensive side. To be totally honest with you, he's an, he's a decent playmaker, but I, you know he's one of those tweener guys, like not really skilled enough to be a top six forward. I'm just think, um, I'm thinking with the with 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 Garland there, right? Like I think as soon as oh, you yeah. move Garland to the third line, you're thinking offense from that group. Well, for sure, and and what's really interesting about it too is the size, right? Gar- Garland we know is uh, is diminutive, and then and then Suter is not. Uh, over six feet tall. Uh, what does that mean in terms of who their third line mate needs to be? Right? Yep. D- is that is that a potential landing spot for Pod Colson if he doesn't stick with Miller, or is that a potential spot where a player like Dakota Joshua, mm-hmm. who scored ten goals last season, um, could ultimately bump into as this team begins to get down to their numbers? Uh, over the course of camp in the preseason. We will take a break. Harmon Dial, also of The Athletic, is going to join us next. And in the second hour of the show, we will hear from Canucks center Elias Patterson. Lots more on the way. It is Canucks Talk Sportsnet 650.